Before we jump into the show, I wanted to start with a cautionary note about drugs. The reason for this is because, apart from getting a generally good response from the stoned Dracula commentary in last week's episode, I do find that, in the rare occasion I smoke pot, I find that it not only makes me chatty, but giggly. Which can be kind of embarrassing in certain situations, tiresome in other situations, for other people. But when it comes to editing these podcasts, it makes the process a little more interesting because when I'm listening to a four-day-old recording of my stone self going on some tangent, even I don't know where it's going, and there's an element of discovery that I kind of enjoy. So I thought, you know, I've got a bit of weed left from the bit that I bought for the commentary track. Let me go ahead and record this week's episode while I'm stoned. Plot twist, being high is maybe good for riffing about things. It is not all that great (laughs) for trying to follow a script. So this episode is a bit of a mess. But there's another one soon to follow, and I think that one will be a little more orderly. Anyways, thanks for listening. Here it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I suppose it's divisive to say this, but I like Joe Biden. I've always liked Joe Biden. I turned 18 in 2009, so right, I wasn't able to vote for Obama the first time, but I voted for Obama the second time, and I liked him a lot too. And I thought he was cool and gracious and compassionate. But even though I thought that of him and I had my feelings about the next president, um, I wasn't really alert to politics during Obama's two terms. And I'm frankly not that alert to it now, but I'm starting to be. And I know everyone's burned out from election season, so let me let me promise you up front that this episode is not about politics. My thing is like I was I was slow to the jump on becoming literate in the game, so now purely because of timing, I find that Joe Biden is the first politician to like really captivate me. And you don't and you don't have to tell me how weird that is. <laughs> Um, my roommate was walking around the apartment, shaking his head after the election result, saying, um, I can't imagine a more boring man for the entire world to be cheering about. I actually got kind of emotional during Biden's acceptance speech, although I was a little tipsy, to be honest, and also the simple fact that there was finally a winner, any winner, it felt like the bursting of some, of a huge emotional abscess. But anyway, I'm reading, I'm reading a lot about politics lately, and in particular, about the office of the president. I'm kind of enchanted by the busyness of that job. I'm kind of hypnotized by the idea of the, like, the million different problems on a president's plate at any given moment. The late nights doing work in a big carpeted room, sitting at a desk while also being on a moving airplane. I'm not sure exactly what the allure of these things is, and I think it has something to do with cleaning my room. At the end of last week, I was... Clocked into work, I was sitting at my desk at home, and my roommate sent me a text from the living room saying that he wanted to sit down and have a talk with me uh, whenever I was free, which was kind of terrifying <laughs> for reasons I'll explain in a minute. So I hurry up with my work, I finish grading everything, and then I go out into the living room where he is and I and I ask what he wanted to talk about, and he says, are you done with work? And I said, yeah, I'm done with work, everything is graded, I'm still clocked in, but it basically means I just have to sit at my desk, so what's up? And he's really somber, whatever's on his mind, and he says, come back when you're completely done. So I go back to my room, and I, and I waited out over the next two hours, stressing. Stressing because I know this can only be about one thing, moving. 
This apartment that we occupy is way below what my roommate can afford, and it and kind of just barely at the neck of what I can afford. So when he decides to upgrade, I'm gonna be floundering for a bit. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna be in a tight spot looking for a similar place. Anyways, I'm there at my desk. My shift ends, uh, so I go out into the living room and I ask him what's up, and he goes, "Look, you pay rent here. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but Bopple, you have to clean your room." Please, he says, let me help you. What my roommate is referring to isn't a mess in my bedroom exactly, it's just boxes. I cleared out a storage unit with my mom a few months ago, and I've got these giant boxes of books and old journals and CDs and whatever. I've tried to move things around in my room to better accommodate the boxes, but it's a huge headache, and, and you never stop noticing that they're there, but my roommate has given me this spiel, and I realize once he makes his case, it, yeah, it is possible, maybe, to sort of move things around so that the boxes fit better. I just need to manage my space. Everything will fit if I can just manage my space. I've never watched Marie Kondo on Netflix, that show about how to organize, organize your space, because <laughs> I know a fucking wormhole when I see one. Let us go then, you and I. Listen, I did cocaine once. I do that only once in my life. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, incidentally, is um, Duck, You Sucker uh, by Sergio Leone. It's a Western, and it came out in the 70s, and nobody has watched it. And nobody will watch it with me, which is kind of understandable, because it's two and a half hours long and kind of dry. Also, <laughs> Rod Steiger wears brown face to play a Mexican rapist. It's a great movie. The brown face is bad, and the rape scene is not good either. But other than that... Duck You Sucker is a pretty great movie, and one of my favorite lines of all time, and I don't know why it is that some lines get stuck in your head even though they're not, I, just a lyrical, they're not profound. Anyways, one of my favorite movie lines comes from Duck You Sucker, uh, from the actor uh, James Coburn. He plays this Irish revolutionary, and I don't remember what he's responding to in the movie, but someone says something to him, and he goes, I did that only once in my life. <laughs> I did that only once in my life. <laughs> Some things are just fun to say, huh? Huh? <laughs> oh, fuck. Ray Bradbury used to say that all the time. He'd go, huh? Especially as he got older, he would start punctuating every sentence with, huh? And, and he's one of these figures where, you know, there's footage of him from the time he was, like, 35 to the time he was, you know, 85. Uh, so you can see the progression. And, you know, in the 70s, he'd go on a talk show and he would soliloquize eloquently for, like, six minutes. And he'd punctuate the, you know, the two halves of that soliloquy by, huh? Like, he'd be like, he would round it off by being like, and that's why, you know, nature cradles us in its bosom, huh? And, you know, it was like a lyrical little punctuation, a little tick. But then as he got older, it would be, it was like, it was like a tick. He'd be like, boy, it sure is great to eat an apple, huh? You bite through the skin, and then there's more of it, huh? There's more, huh? If you could write one short story a week, doesn't matter what the quality is to start. And at the end of a year, you have 52 short stories, and I defy you to write 52 bad ones, huh? Because they're slices of life, huh? Didn't it put you to sleep immediately, huh? Go read Edgar Allan Poe again, huh? All the great philosophers of time, comparing them, huh? Anyway, yeah, we were talking about cocaine, and the fact that I only... <laughs> the fact that I did that only 
once in my life. But yeah, so I was in Coral Gables, and I was really drunk, and the person I was dating had some coke, and she gave me a bump off of a car key, and it straightened me out. It, it really did work. And then we did more, and more, as the night wore on, and we stopped at dawn. And I had a kind of epiphany when we stopped, because I was like, this is the greatest feeling ever. I need to make sure <laughs> I never do this again. And I never have done it again. But I, the temptation was there, because a like a big passion in my life, a passion so intimate and enveloping, it's practically a kink, um, is productivity. And, it, you know, cocaine, if I picked up a cocaine addiction, I feel like it would really help me get things done. And there's a, But there's a component of guilt to that fascination with productivity. And I might have mentioned this to you before. I dated a med student a couple years ago who was one of the most fiendishly busy and assiduous people I'd ever met. And one day we were talking about how when we go to bed, both of us have trouble kind of turning off our brains. And she said that her kind, her winding down maneuver is that at the end of the day, when she's under the covers and the lights are out, she would look at the ceiling and take inventory of everything that she had to do the next day, like what step-by-step step she was going to accomplish. And I was doing the opposite. While she would be itemizing everything she had to do the next day, I would be staring at the ceiling doing this fucking Jesuitical school marm accounting of what I did that day, trying to see if I had been productive enough to deserve sleep. But here's the thing. I, I almost only value a certain kind of productivity, and it's the sort of productivity that takes me a step closer to achieving a personal goal. And maybe that's the same for you, too. Like, one of my favorite bartenders is a fitness fanatic named Romeo. He works at American Social, and he told me that he feels guilty. It feels like a legit sleep-stealing shame if a day goes by without his doing some kind of workout. And maybe you've probably got your own thing. Maybe you've got kids and you, and you say to yourself like, oh, if, you know, if I don't feed my kids at least once a day, I feel really bad. I can't sleep. Whatever it is, you've got your values, a, a kind of internal garden that needs daily watering. And for me, that garden is writing and podcasting. And, and sometimes it's fucking stupid. I'll be like, I feel, I feel if I'm cleaning my room like, oh, I'm not doing something valuable with my time. But then every now and then I'll be like, you know what? It, it is important that I spend the next four and a half hours walking 10 miles through Coral Gables. I do this like once a month. On a Saturday or a Sunday, I'll be like, yeah, today's the day. I'm going to walk 10 miles. So I'm here. I'm looking at sort of the clutter in my room, and I know I will feel good and relieved once I have straightened my room, but it's going to take time away from you know, writing and reading and recording and editing and walking eight miles for no reason. <laughs> and so the process of straightening my room will be made miserable by the fact that, one, it is inherently a miserable thing to do. Number two... I'm bad at it. And the only thing <laughs> worse than doing a miserable thing is doing a miserable thing that you're also going to be, like, fucking up at. And number three, I'm, I'm going to also be stressing... I'm going to be stressing not only about what a miserable job I'm doing at clearing space, I'm going to be stressing about how much writing I could be doing efficiently if I didn't have to inefficiently do this shit. Now, what I have... But, you know, what I have to do is I have to make space in my schedule and in my mind, for the task of making space in my room. In the year 1681, the poet Andrew Marvell wrote a poem about a lady he wanted to bang, and he begins it by saying, Had we but world enough and time, this coyness, lady, were no crime. And then he goes on to say, like, 
oh, if we had all the time in the world, um, if we had but world enough in time, we would dig up stones on a river and I'd look at each of your eyeballs for 10,000 years just to appreciate their uniqueness, whatever. But then after going on about all the things he would do if they had all the, you know, all the time in the world, he goes, you know, there isn't enough time though. And he's like, so let's fuck right now while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew. Basically saying, hey, I would be romantic if we had time, but we're both going to die pretty soon, so let's have sex immediately. That, but that opening kind of haunts me. Had we but world enough in time. I think of that phrase at least once a day, to be honest. It's kind of harrowing. It's an eloquent way of being reminded of your mortality and everything. But then there's a T.S. Eliot line from his poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where again and again, all through the poem, he, he's saying, and indeed there will be time. He says it again and again. And indeed there will be time to meet the faces that you meet. Indeed there will be time. There will be time to make mistakes and undo them. By the way, if you've never heard T.S. Eliot read that poem, there's a recording of it and you should definitely check it out. Mainly just for the part where he says, Then how should I begin to spit out all the buttons of my days and ways? <laughs> he says it like this. Then how should I begin to spit out all the buttons of my days and ways? <laughs> he's, he's like, Then how should I begin to spit out all the buttons of my days and ways? <laughs> he's like, uh, He goes, then how should I begin to spit out all the buttons of my days and ways? And sorry, if you really are annoyed and you're afraid I'm going to hit you again with three consecutive T.S. Eliot quotes, don't worry. I did that only once in my life. So, this newfound interest in politics. What I want to do is... What I want to do now is I want to go read Robert Caro's thousands of pages about Lyndon Johnson, and I want to read Ezra Klein's book about polarization, and I want to read Obama's new thousand-page memoir. But even more than those things, I kind of want to watch the news. But here's my dumbass issue about watching the news. Apart from feeling generally hostile toward the million things that 24-hour news does to, to like distort and render suspenseful or render dramatic the inanities of government, so that you'll be drawn back to the screen by anxiety rather than joy or interest. But my issue about watching a lot of cable news is that, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, the news cycle tells you that the thing that happened today in Washington is critical to the future of the Republic. They give you so much angina about the whole thing that you, you pull out your phone and you do three hours of anxious reading on the topic until you feel well-versed in it. You feel a little less tilted, a little less like you're in the dark. You do three hours of research and then the next day you check the news and the issue you spent three hours researching isn't even mentioned. It had no influence on anything. It was reabsorbed into the body politic like any other political pimple. And you realize that those three hours of research could have been used to get some chores done, or to finally watch Dr. Zhivago, or maybe just masturbate a lot. So if you're a big news watcher, you're going to burn a lot of your time and energy worrying about ephemera, doing deep dives into shallow pools. And, and I've always thought it would be better to use those hours looking into timeless things, literature, great movies of the past, philosophy, painting. Because your energy of focus, your energy of concentration is, is fairly precious. You only get so much of it. But now I'm thinking like, yes, the news of the day won't likely yield insights into the timeless truths of, or of mankind or whatever. It's generally ephemeral, sure, and, it, and you're not next week you will, you will not remember any news segment that you watched this week. But then I realize like, aren't I kind of ephemeral too? Like I'm championing this constant focus on, on, on timeless things, as though I myself am going to be here forever. I'm not. And, and while I am here, I think it's important that I 
I participate in my in my community of temporary terrestrial tenants, and that we all share and observe and work for the moment that we are in, the world and the country and the government that we are in. Not just for our benefit, but for that of tenants to come. And if I'm careful and responsible with my news intake, with my deep diving into the history of American presidents or whatever, yes, it's going to take away time from reading great literature and philosophy and studying painting, whatever, but, but I can probably fit the timeless stuff in too. All I have to do is manage my space. As Marie Kondo would probably tell us, there's always a little extra space to accommodate the clutter. And justify, maybe you're thinking, well, no, sometimes there really isn't enough space. And how then am I supposed to juggle my interest in daily things with my interest in timeless things? The highbrow and the low. And how do I mix that stuff with work? And how do I mix it with my social life? And then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? At the end of middle school, um, I got I discovered Bob Dylan because I bought like the essential Bob Dylan. It was a two disc set with like his most popular songs from the first half of his career and what up to that point, and I guess like 2005 was you know the current moment of his career. And so I played that essential Bob Dylan thing. I got really into it and um, I really liked his stuff. And then I learned that I think that year or a couple months prior to my having discovered this CD, he had just released a new album called uh, Modern Times. And in discovering Bob Dylan, I, I started like looking at, you know, old music blogs and forums and shit. And they all seem to agree on the fact that if you come to appreciate a musician on the basis of like a compilation CD or, you know, a best of or something like that, you don't really know the musician. And I was so head over heels about Bob Dylan, I was going to be like, no, I'm going to prove this. I'm going to go get his newest album. And I should say that, like, when I was in high school, I listened to that CD on my iPod a million times. And in particular, I liked um, a song called Thunder on the Mountain. I think it's a song that opens the uh, album. And it's like a western tune. And I thought what I thought was so edgy and cool about it is that he says sons of bitches in it. And I was like, ha ha, yeah, vulgarity in my music, That's, that makes me edgy. One of the tracks popped up in my Spotify recommendations this week, um, and it was Thunder on the Mountain, the one that says Sons of Bitches. And I li so I'm listening to the song again, and it's a long song, and, and it's all chatter, there's no like musical riffs. But I had listened to it so many times <laughs> when I was 14 or 15, that even though I haven't heard it in years and it's a very long song, I could anticipate every line as it was coming up. And the verse that I was most looking forward to, because I remember it gave me such delight when I was a teenager, was the verse where he says, Sons of Bitches. And so I listened to the song, I heard the Sons of Bitches, and I thought, ah, yeehaw, cool beans. And so I, um, whatever, the song played through it, I was like, oh, that was so delightful, let me listen to it again. And I'm going to recite to you the verse in question. <laughs> and why suddenly I can't take it seriously. So this is Bob Dylan in the song. <laughs> He's like, this is the verse. Gonna raise, I'm gonna do the Bob Dylan voice. Gonna raise me an army, some tough sons of bitches. I'll recruit my army from the orphanages. <laughs> and now I have this image in my head of Bob Dylan, like, recruiting an army of orphans. Like, what would you do? 
with that army <laughs> like apart from just trying to think like let's say you're trying to become some like big political mover and shaker and i don't know some politician is doing something you don't like and then he looks out the window and he sees an army of orphans like giving him an intense look You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, you can buy my new ebook, a collection of three personal essays and three short stories called My Three Repugnant Children, which is currently available on Amazon for just $1. You can also check out the blog posts that in- invariably work their way into this podcast script at www.thousandmovieproject.com.